0: My name is Seth Jones, I'm the Harold Brown Chair here at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I also teach in the Strategic Studies Program at Johns Hopkins University School for Advanced International Studies. Uh, I am delighted to have Jake Shapiro here. Before I get started, I wanted to highlight a couple things. One is that uh, I don't expect any emergencies, but just in case uh, something happens, uh, I will direct you to the National Geographic Society next door where we will reconvene. It's the emergency location for CSIS. Uh, so just listen to my instructions. Um, second, we'll, Jake and I will talk up here about his book and then we'll open it up to uh, questions and answers from you. So we look forward to your comments. And uh, if you have any questions, again, just hold on because we'll have somebody with a microphone who will come around. So with that, um, I'd like to warmly welcome Jake. Jake is a Professor of Politics and International Affairs at Princeton. Uh, He also co-directs the Empirical Studies of Conflict Project. Uh, I have been impressed with Jake's work over time for two related reasons. One is that he uh, served in the Navy, so he has an appreciation for how policy is conducted, how war is fought. He also has a significant interest in data. And as someone who did his PhD work at the University of Chicago, where not only fun comes to die, but quantitative work is also highly appreciated, uh, I have a vested interest in that. And as part of of Jake's interest along those lines, um, a lot of time overseas in conflict zones, Uh, Pakistan, India, Colombia, Afghanistan, among others. So thanks for all of the work you do. Um, I don't know how you sleep at night sometimes, but uh, I guess I guess the saying goes, um, everybody sleeps when they're dead. So you'll have plenty of time at some point down the road. Um, let me start off with, with this uh, broader question about um, your motivation for the book. And I want you to unpack for us this visual that you start the book with in its it's June 6th, 2005, and we're in, we're in Iraq, and we're at a um, meeting being held by the commanding general for the US Army's 1st Infantry Division, and he projects a map on the, the screen that shows the coast of France out of all things. What's the importance of this, and how from that then do you, uh, do you move into why this issue more broadly is important? So uh,
1: first, thanks for having me, Seth, and thanks everyone uh, for coming to join us. What, what really motivated um, the book and a lot of this research was a sense that the wars that uh, the US and its allies were fighting and have been fighting uh, for a long time were being discussed in 2007, 2008, when my co-authors and I started working on this, um, in ways that were uh, kind of wrong, in the sense that the intuition people were drawing was from thinking about, the history of symmetric conflicts between roughly uh, similarly powerful forces, and to uh, Ellie and Joe, who both fought in these kinds of wars, and myself, these just—they were just a different kind of uh, beast, a different animal, and we wanted to understand it. And so, when I give the the talk um, with slides, I open with a slide that has two pictures on it. So one is one of the Magnificent Eleven—the um, photos that uh, the eleven surviving photos from the first wave at D-Day which are taken by Robert uh, Kappa, uh, the Frame War Correspondent, as he follows elements of the 16th Infantry Regiment, 1st Infantry Division ashore. And then I have below that a picture of two sergeants from the same unit uh, pulling security on top of a neighborhood council meeting in Baghdad in March 2007. And so we were talking about this with one of the folks who helped us out in the book, um, uh, now I believe uh, General Brent Parmitter, and he told us this story about June 6, 2005, when First ID was deployed uh, to Iraq and for their daily battle update brief, they gave what the briefing would have been on the morning uh, of, the, of the D-Day invasion. And to us, it just really nicely highlighted this disconnect between the ways that the scholarly literature and, and the policy community, at least in 2007 and seven and eight, was talking about these wars and um, how they were actually fought. And, the book is trying to pull together the work of a large research community to understand how these types of wars are fought and what makes them different from the ones where we draw our intuition.
0: Let, let, me, let me move for a moment to um, one of the issues that you talk about pretty early on is you write that um, in asymmetric wars, the struggle is fundamentally not over territory, but over people because people hold critical information. And we'll come to big data, data analytics, and some of the analytical part in a moment. But can you explain what this means for everybody here? How important is information? And can you talk about then what you mean by, you say people hold critical information? And then we'll get to the the analytical side.
1: Yeah, absolutely, Seth. So I I think the best way to describe this or the way I like to explain this now with um, folks is with a bit of a story. So um,
0: By the way, the book in general, when you read it not if when you read it and i've got a copy here um uh each of the chapters and throughout the book there are these stories that come with it including the iraq story that you just noted so i I actually like the way you've integrated stories that are accessible in in with the data itself thank you
1: yeah so so one of the things
0: i mean where that comes from just like on
1: the the kind of rhetoric of it is you know we do a lot of fancy data analysis in the book and we talk about some game theory and things like that, but ultimately when we're trying to explain that to people, it, it really comes down to stories and kind of imagining mm-hmm. yourself in the context in which the people creating the data and about whom the theory is written are operating. And the, the, the best kind of way to understand the role of information is to imagine, uh, if, if you'll take yourself for a minute to a small village in the rural part of some country, um, uh, we talk about the Philippines in the book, where uh, there's a father who's asleep in the middle of the night one night, and he hears a noise just outside the family compound uh, in the alley, uh, you know, small road behind his, behind his house, and he goes out and kind of peeks through the gate, and he sees a couple guys out there messing around um, with some trash at the base of a telephone pole, right where the road curves. And this is like a really odd thing for him because you know there's like a curfew on it's an area where there's been violence for a long time, and normally people aren't out and about that night. And on the bedstand stand next to him, because it's you know 2010, uh, there's a cell phone. And if he picks that phone up and uh, places a call to the local uh, police forces or local army base, um, what those guys were doing was probably planting an IED. And uh, he knows that because there's been conflict in the area for a while, and even like the kids in the area have started to integrate into their like. Cops and Robbers games, the idea that the way the rebels start the attack on the government is they trigger an IED against a patrol and then fire down on it from the hills. And so he knows what these guys are doing. And if he decides to call in that information or send in a text, in the morning, the patrol is not going to come down that road. Or if they do, they're going to be really careful. And they might send some people out that night to go after the people planning the IED. And so he, like all the things like planning that IED or setting up an ambush which insurgents might do in a lot of the conflicts that U.S. and its allies have been fighting, they reveal information about the activity of the insurgents to civilians. And because the conflict is asymmetric, if those civilians share that information with the government, then um, the violence doesn't succeed. And so they hold that critical information. And the fact that they do, like, ripples through everyone's decisions. So, for example, if the rebels, who are messing around at the base of that telephone pole, if they know for sure that the father doesn't want them there and is gonna call in the the tip, he's gonna call in and share that information, they're not gonna go there, they're gonna go somewhere else where they think they might be able to get away with it. And if the patrol knows for sure, the leader of the patrol knows for sure that if something is happening in that space, no one is gonna call it in, they're gonna be much more cautious about operating in that area. And so there has to be some uncertainty about what the politics of the father are in the example, and what he decides to do with the information, it's kind of critical for deciding in the next day or the next week who's going to control that little piece of territory. And that basic principle kind of scales up to higher
0: levels. So, then take that a step further. What is the argument then for what successful, in your view, when it comes to the use of information, what does successful counterinsurgency look like in its, its collection and use of it? And what does Unsuccessful counterinsurgency operations look like, um, and then I want uh, to, the, and then I want to sort of move into how information, including its collection, has changed over time.
1: For sure. So, so this is a, a kind of Seth raises like a very um, deep point, which is what we're able to tell you about in the book um, and in this whole body of research is what explains variation at the local level. So, who's going to control a given village or a given valley? And in our, in, in our analysis, what, what success means is the ability to control, with a relatively modest investment of forces, uh, a given locale. It's not settling the deep political conflicts which um, are motivating the war in the first place. It's about establishing local control. And so what successful use of information looks like is, is basically moving into an area, doing some things which involve treating the local population relatively decently, uh, protecting them a little bit from the costs of war, doing some small things that, uh, that they appreciate in various ways, getting a little bit of information from them, using that to go out and kill or capture insurgents, and repeating that process until control is established over that area. So that's like the kind of like the definition of success. The unsuccessful approach is, and in, in a lot of these settings there's good evidence for this, can fall into kind of two buckets. One is coming in and um, trying to do really big things in terms of fundamentally changing the economy of an area or reshape the local politics of an area in ways that um, are, are kind of orthogonal to the thing that's got people fighting in the first place mm-hmm. um, or coming in with a very heavy hand in ways which create costs for the civilian population so that that father who's thinking about should he call in the information, he's not sure if he wants the soldiers from the outside there or if he wants the rebels there. What you want is you want that father in the near term to prefer that tomorrow and the next day and the next week, uh, the government is in charge or its allies are in charge. And if you come in in ways that kind of ruin that preference on the part of some small set of people,
2: mm-hmm.
1: then the rebels are able to operate and able to impose costs on the government. And like, there's a very important distinction to draw here, which is this is not about like, winning over the mass of the population. So that they change sides to the government. This is about getting some small number of people who are on the fence when they see things about whether they should say something, and that's like a different process than how we've traditionally conceptualized this.
0: So, can you just give some concrete examples more broadly? We've had successes in Iraq. Huh? You've written about them around the time of both the awakening and the surge. For sure. So that appears to be a case where uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq at that time suffered significant defeats on the battlefield in provinces like Anbar, but in other areas. So walk us through for a moment the success there. And on the other side, I'm curious, we're we're at year 17 in Afghanistan, uh, a country that many of us, including me, have spent significant time and served in the U.S. government in uh, virtually any metric that one looks at does show that uh, Taliban control of population has probably increased slightly. One can debate the the data and in, from organizations like the Special Investigator General for Afghanistan Reconstruction or SIGAR, but that's clearly been a significant challenge. So. Take that argument and at least walk us through the Iraq example on where it succeeded and potentially the Afghan one on why we've, we've had challenges there.
1: For sure, so, so one of my favorite um, examples from, from the war in Iraq is what happens when you improve telecommunications infrastructure in a given place. So there's, there's like this general fact about the war in Iraq which is that as um, cell phone, the cell phone coverage over the country of Iraq is built out over the course of the war, between 2003 and 2009, they go from having, like, no cell phone coverage to pretty much the whole area covered. And um, this opens up all kinds of opportunities for the insurgency for how to attack uh, U.S. and Iraqi forces, so new ways of fusing IDs, new ways of collecting intelligence. There are all these changes, um, which you think would favor the insurgents. But what happens systematically is when cell phone coverage comes in, violence goes down. There's a great story about this, which is that... I was, I was teaching like, the, the very wonky um, econometrically oriented research paper which shows this in one of my uh, classes um, at Princeton a few years back, and one of my students raises his hand and was like, oh yeah, like, I totally believe that because like, I did it. I was like, okay, what do you mean? And um, this student, uh, um, now uh, Captain Ryan Chan, who we talk about in the book, he, um, he was the a Special Operations Task Force commander um, at that point in time at Camp Habania. Uh, in Iraq, which was an area between kind of two major cities on one of the main roads out to Syria, and um, he, because he wanted to deconflict operations with the local police, uh, brokered a deal with Iraqna, which was the main telecommunications company, to put up a cell phone tower on the base which he was at, so that they could like call the police before they went on operation, make sure there were no police around uh, when they were going to hit a target, because they didn't want to mistakenly get in a firefight with the police. And um, the story he told was as soon as they put up this tower, all of a sudden they started to get all these tips in from the population, which they were able to use to go out and run raids and go out and, and, and kill or capture uh, al-Qaeda operatives in the area. This was like just at the start of the awakening. And the only way that makes sense is if you imagine that father who's sitting there and he's pissed off about something that's happening near his house, but he doesn't have a safe way to get the information to the people on the base. But as soon as his cell phone starts working when he's laying in bed at night, what can he do? He can reach out to the numbers that are being advertised and call in the information, which makes it way to Ryan and his guys, and then they go out and run operations uh, against those insurgents. So that's how it works, is you bring down the cost just a little bit for people to share information, and then you get, you're able to go out and run these operations, which allow you to establish control and shift the dynamics locally. So so that gets then the question of Afghanistan. And if, if we're right that there is this approach which works and it's not that hard to do, you need to put up some cell phone towers and provide small scale aid to communities so that they, they want to share information, what's up with the like, long run trajectory in Afghanistan? And I, I think there are two, two, parts, two parts to the answer. I think one part is um, you never in Afghanistan between the Afghan government and uh, its external supporters had sufficient forces to do that in all the places where the Taliban could operate, just because of the nature of the country. But I think the other is doing those local things can create windows of political opportunity, but it doesn't solve the deep political fissure. And like my, my perspective, at least on Afghanistan, is, is the deep political fissure is not, is not at all about Afghan politics. So it seems very clear to me, at least, from watching this for a decade now, that um, most of the Afghan government would like a deal with the Taliban, which cedes some amount of control in some parts of the country to them or gives them some role in government, uh, and, uh, but reserves preserves minority rights in certain things in other parts of the country. And that the same is true for the Taliban. But there's a veto player for the Taliban, and they're across the border in Pakistan. And Nothing that is happening in Afghanistan as far as like winning local victories by the Afghan government and its allies is going to change the fundamental strategic incentives of that veto player. And so there's this disconnect in Afghanistan between winning the local victories and resolving the deep political issue behind the conflict. And I think the reason you haven't seen success there is not that there's not an approach which works to win the village or the valley. There's evidence from lots of countries that that exists. It's that there's a disconnect between that and the deep political issue in Afghanistan.
0: So you would argue, or 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 you would you would admit acknowledge that uh, there are other factors that can impact the state of the campaign on the ground. In this case, would be outside support from a major power or sanctuary or issues along those lines that are also factors contributing to the battlefield, uh, the situation on the battlefield.
1: For sure, and I mean, one of the things that's interesting about Afghanistan is you've had these reports come out like year after year that the existence of sanctuary alone, like there were points in time where even though the Taliban had sanctuary across the border, there was all this kind of reporting and leaks coming out that there were elements of the leadership which like wanted to make a deal. And they, they are as aware as the Afghan government, um, I think that they're not gonna get what they want through a fully military campaign. I think that's been made very clear, but um, their political desires are
0: not the ones which hold sway here. So let's turn for a moment to um, big data. One of the things that you note here is there have been new tools that that improve our ability to use this smart approach. There are research methods that were unavailable, and data science, including big data. You've talked a little bit about this, but I think it would be helpful for people to hear what you mean by that. Um, there's a second part of this, which is um, how does this a- affect our, our ability to do research on these subjects? Because now having information from uh, a research perspective allows us to, to look at this in some cases to look at it causally, mm-hmm. to look at the relationship between independent and dependent variables. Um, so how is, first of all, how is big data uh, and, and these research methods enabled the SMART approach you're talking about? And second, how's it enabled the, the, the research component of this too?
1: For sure, so on, on the SMART approach, um, one of the things that has happened in, um, it happened in both uh, Iraq and later in Afghanistan, is there was a large investment in um, data processing infrastructure within uh, the command at multinational forces Iraq and and within uh, ISAF Joint Command in Afghanistan, where uh, people were doing all kinds of careful analysis of trends in conflict and patterns in conflict uh, during the war, which sometimes informed operations uh, and sometimes didn't, um, but which enabled um, commanders to have like a fairly granular view, if they wanted to, of uh, trends and patterns in different places and to do different kinds of program evaluation on what they were doing. Um, uh, we, don't, uh, we don't yet have and did not for most of those conflicts have the ability within the bureaucratic structure to fully take advantage of that information, but there were definitely some um, isolated uh, victories. So one of, one of my favorites is at one point in time, um, the analysts at ISAF Joint Command noticed that um, a lot of patrols in a lot of places were getting hit as soon as they left the forward operating bases, and um, they were kind of did some analysis around why this was, and immediately noticed that they were basically leaving at the same time every morning. So they sent passed this up, and some guidance went out to like randomize departure times, which seems like an obvious thing, but a lot of people weren't doing it. Um, and they then were processing the data and immediately noticed that now the attacks were clustering at the time that people were returning. And so they did a little more analysis and they said, okay, well, like, you need to randomize return times and not like, come back right before basically um, in time to have dinner, basically. And that seems like such an obvious thing, but having someone in this analytical cell at IJC crunch the numbers and see that on average across theater, there was this like, little, small, correctable mistake being made, which had implications for little things like, you know, how should the meal services contracts be written? Um, that was not something people were seeing absent looking at the data.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Turning to the academic side, um, one of the stark things is, if you look at every country where we've been able to build like very precise time series data on conflict at the local level, um, so this is now uh, seven or eight countries, um, what you see is there's no single pattern to the war. So if you look in Afghanistan, there's a clear seasonality to the fighting, but um, different districts have peaks in violence at different times, uh, often years apart. If you look in Iraq, there's this general trend of violence steadily increasing to some point between mid-2006 and mid-2008, and then falling off a cliff. But it happens at a different month in every district, like where they, when they hit that cliff. And so what that leads us to think is there's not one conflict, these local dynamics are hugely important. And what we can do as researchers, when we have the fine-grained data, is we can start to study those local dynamics. And that lets us answer a set of questions that are important. It doesn't let us answer all the questions. So what does it let us answer? It lets us answer questions like, um, if your theory of how you used non-military tools of national policy to bring conflict down um, was about fundamentally reshaping the economy through large-scale investments in reconstruction, that is almost certainly wrong. Because locally there's basically uh, zero, or in fact a positive relationship between how much you spend on large-scale aid projects and how much violence there is. If on the other hand what you thought you had to do was um, do small things to address local grievances, that's almost surely right, because in multiple conflicts that seems to work. Um, Another thing it lets you do is say, uh, basically what's the, um, is labor the constraint For a lot of insurgencies. We have all these theories and a lot of policy that was enacted by the U.S. government for many years and its allies, which said, look, what we need to do is we need to give people an alternative to participation in the insurgency. We need to create, like, alternative passive employment and give, like, young men who might engage in military activities something else to do. And if you look closely at where those kinds of programs are implemented and what kinds of violence happens and how violence happens there's basically like no evidence for that. And in fact, there's a bunch of evidence in the opposite direction. And why is that? Well, if you then take a different form of big data, which is all like the salary records that were picked up from uh, Al-Qaeda in Iraq and other groups uh, during the course of the wars, what you see is um, people were clearly not making a choice between the normal labor market and insurgency. How do we know that? Well, we know that because we can see in those records, some of which come from a project Seth and I worked on Uh, many years ago, that um, they were getting paid terrible salaries. They just were in a different labor market than the normal labor market. And so these things which were huge, tens of billions of dollars invested by the US government, were clearly premised on a mistaken understanding of what the labor market for insurgency looked like. And we can learn that because we had this very fine-grained data on both conflict and on the different kinds of programs that were rolling out in different places. Stepping back and going back to your Afghanistan point, though, that is like a fundamentally different question than how do you resolve these conflicts in the first place? Mm-hmm. And the data are not so useful for that question because that's about these politics, and you get one observation per war, mm-hmm. and so the data doesn't really help you with that.
0: Let me ask you. Uh, I've got two two questions I will open it up. The first one is. Um, you know, one of the wars I've been looking at recently has been the Russian have been the Russian operations in Syria. They have a very different approach, which um, which which doesn't get to the fine-grained data analytics, at, even at the local level that you just laid out. When we look at Russian operations in Aleppo or in Palmyra or in homes or in other cities, uh, it is a punishment campaign against. Uh, those local populations. It is surrounding those areas with maneuver forces, Mm -hmm. uh, pounding them then with uh, airstrikes from bombers and from fixed-wing aircraft, uh, using caliber cruise missiles from uh, vessels in areas like the Mediterranean, artillery barrages, uh, leaflet leaflet drops to tell people to get out. Mm And this is the result. And then to go in once once the area has been cleared. There's been a little bit of work, including from Jason Lyle, which have looked at the effects of a punishment campaign. Right. Um, your thoughts on the different, that's a very different model than what you've looked at, and a very different model from what Western countries generally would operate. But what's your reaction to that kind of a campaign, and what data analytics might show about that kind of war uh and and broader implications
1: so so it's a it's a it's a great question and and um you know there are kind of two things wrapped up in there there's one is that um is that more or less cost effective um and then the other is if more cost effective like can is there like a moral case that can be made for that type of campaign right and um I think the evidence on cost effectiveness and efficiency is is actually very mixed. So um, the best evidence we have on this actually comes from the Vietnam War, um, from work by uh, uh, Professor up at Harvard, Melissa Dell and uh, Pablo Carubin at University of Chicago. And what they can show you is that during the the Vietnam War, um, in parts of the country, the U.S. military followed strategies that looked very much like that, and in parts of the country, the U.S. military followed strategies very much like kind of what we talk about as being an effective uh, approach to asymmetric conflict. And um, it turns out that because of the command structure in Vietnam, the dividing line between those two strategies is uh, very precise. It's basically the the dividing line between the army and and marine commands in the northern part of southern Vietnam. And if you look at villages on either side of that border, um, there is a extremely stark difference. And uh, it is not in favor of the more um, uh, of the less of the strategy that is less careful of civilian lives, right? It is it is clear that the uh, casualties being taken by the U.S. military were much lower uh, per capita and per combat incident on the other on the northern side of that line, which is the Marine zone, where they followed a more um, uh, population-centric strategy. And um, over the over the longer run, those areas produced many fewer. Uh, attacks by uh, the Viet Cong and later by the North Vietnamese Army. Um, so, in at least that setting it is true that in both places there were, with both strategies, there were areas which were successfully pacified. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the more kind of careful, targeted strategies seemed to work better. Now, again, um, you know, it's hard to compare the political efficacy of, of the two strategies because when you get to the level of the conflict and is it successfully resolved, all kinds of other things come into play. Mm -hmm. Um, To me, this strikes me though as a little bit of a moot point in the sense that um, there's no world I can imagine in which the publics in the US and its allies would tolerate that type of campaign. And so then the question is, is there another way in which such wars can be effectively prosecuted? And the, the research suggests that the answer is like a resounding maybe. There is in the sense that there are things which can be done locally to establish order. The next question then is, is there a political theory which takes you from establishing order in favor of the government locally to a national level political settlement?
0: But then the number of variables that impact that, they get complicated though.
1: For sure, but I think, that, I think this, what this points to for me is this like a little bit of a deep mistake in US strategy in these conflicts, which is the, the question that gets asked by the political leadership, and this is like, having not been in these rooms, this, I'm sure this is vast oversimplification, is um, can we do something to succeed in this conflict? And the advice from much of the security apparatus in answering that question is, for sure we can, because they're thinking of success at that local level. And so the political leadership that's then says, like, great, let's, like, let's do it, let's do something here. And the mistake there is mistaking the ability to do things at the local level for the ability to get that like, higher level political resolution. And the question we haven't asked is, is there a path from those local things, which for sure can be done, to the national thing? Hmm. And there are cases where for sure there were, for example, Iraq, and cases where you probably could have looked at it in 2007 and said, you know what, not without resolving this other political thing like Afghanistan.
0: Mm-hmm. Last question before we open it up is, there's been a lot of focus in Washington about a shift as part of the national defense strategy towards state-based uh, competition. Um, so focus of the US on countries like Russia, mm-hmm. uh, uh, China, North Korea, and, and Iran in particular. One of the of the charts you highlight at the beginning of the book notes that. The period between the Vietnam War and 2015 shows that uh, there have been more civil wars and that they have been far more costly than wars between states. So as you look at the strategic shift in the United States, what's your sense about what it means, if anything, about conventional conflict between states? Mm And if, we don't, if you don't see those as being likely, then are we back to competition that takes place much like we did at the Cold War that involve small wars that you talked about? So how, how relevant is the issue moving forward? So, so my sense, Seth, is that um,
1: there is likely to be a lot more competition, kind of what we would have thought of as great power competition, but that it will be resolved in, in no small measure through conflicts like the ones we talk about in the book. And, you know, if you look at the period from 1975 through 2015, um, the U.S. and its NATO allies have engaged in overseas new overseas military interventions at a rate of about three per year. And they leave those interventions at a rate of about two per year. So there's like a steady buildup of places where U.S. and its NATO allies have forces deployed overseas, of those interventions, roughly half involve significant um, risk of conflict, uh, or of combat. And so um, I think it is very, it's nice to imagine that there would be a return to a focus in the use of the military elements of national power to great power competition. But nothing in the history of the last 40 years suggests that um, the uh, U.S. military and allied militaries, in the security system as a, as a whole will stop being asked to intervene in these kinds of wars and so um i think there's no reason to expect this to go away as a policy issue um, certainly nothing we've seen in the last 40 years would suggest
0: that nor what would I, would I say this, the same issue applies to allies in the case of the competition say between the saudis and iran which takes place in part in countries like yemen uh, which is obviously an important subject in the us today so Um, Why don't we open it up to uh, questions here, if you could just raise your hand right here. Uh, um, Just state your name, please.
3: Sure, great. Uh, Thanks, Jake. My name is Grant Meisel, I'm at Georgetown University. Um, I'm a big zealot of data science, so thanks uh, for writing the book. Um, A couple things, though, that have have evolved a little bit of a Hydra of a question here that have evolved uh, during the time that you've been writing that book. Uh, One is the realization of of the incredible transnationality of of big data, as Mm -hmm. well as for coin, generically. Mm -hmm. Um, And and the second piece is the incredible sensitivity that publics have begun to uh, have as, as they've realized what big data means to their everyday lives. Um, with the policies, the laws, the regulations, everything that goes into play. So uh, as, as you move forward uh, with, with policy recommendations, as you move forward uh, with your thoughts on the book, how do you address um, one, us uh, negotiating those, mm-hmm. those country lines that we're gonna have to cross where people are gonna be really very, very sensitive to uh, data collection on, mm-hmm. on um, anybody inside their borders right. um, um, as well as uh, the, the ethics behind those?
1: So, so it's a great question, and I want to I want to make a distinction draw a distinction here. So so Grant, when when Grant speaks about big data, I think a lot of what you're thinking about is like the kinds of digital trace and digital exhaust that we leave in our everyday lives. So like the, the cell phone calls and the GPS tracks and and things like that. And there's a definition of big data, which is like basically data that won't fit on your desktop or laptop. And uh, that's mostly not the kind of like what we mean here when we think about big data. What we think about here is um, the integration of data from many, many different contexts to try and paint an overall picture. So, you know, what we're about in the book is we're pulling together research from more than seventy different, like individually very careful studies of the relationship between a given policy and a given outcome in like one country, and then we try and say, okay, in aggregate, what does that tell you? And so, the big data there is like the accumulation of these studies. Uh, The issue you're talking about is a slightly different one. And there, my favorite thing I've seen on this is um, the Rockefeller Family Foundation funded several years ago this, um, I think think it was like the Rockefeller 100, but they uh, had $100 million for 100 cities to do really innovative things with data. And behind it, they came up with seven principles for projects they were gonna study. And one of them was the right not to be sensed. And so what they were trying to suggest was that communities should have an opportunity to opt out of having sensing be done with their digital exhaust. Because you can use things like you know, the GPS tracks of individual cars to figure out where are the potholes. That could be turned into a really useful service for individuals, but the, the, the Rockefeller kind of foundations idea was communities should have to like, choose through some democratic process that that be applied to them. And all kinds of issues with the practicality of that, but as, like, as, a, as a principle, it has I think it has some nice characteristics.
2: Right. I, I, I guess, sorry, to redirect, you're sort
3: of profiling, but your data's sort of profiling, and do you, people have adoption more, right, to opt out?
0: Do no, you know? no, for sure not. <laughs> one, one follow-up question uh, to that is, uh, and then we'll go uh, over here, is the implications of using this kind of data in, in, in wartime scenarios, and even afterwards, would strongly suggest uh, much more openness in declassifying information, yeah. and actually a stronger partnership between the academic analytical communities and the government. Um, that has not always been the case. So, what are the what are the barriers, in your view, um, uh, with getting access to this data, and how much do we lose out by potentially overclassifying it?
1: Yeah. So. So I think the I think so. Let me take the second part of that first. So I think the loss from overclassification is huge, um, and it comes in two places. It comes one is there's like the lost analytical opportunities. The other is um, when things are um, kept secret um, and behind kind of firewalls. Uh, a thing that happens is they often get destroyed without anyone who can imagine their future value having a say in the process. And so there are massive amounts of history of the US experience in Afghanistan and Iraq, which are just completely lost to history, because the decision about whether or not to preserve, say, the daily battle briefs of a division was not made by someone with uh, training as a historian or a data analyst who could think, OK, this might be really valuable for the future. We should preserve it. It was made by some IT technician whose job was to clean up the hard drives but effectively their decision was erasing that unit's experience from history. And that's an experience which includes in it lessons uh, learned in blood. And, uh, and so that's a problem. And when things enter the process for declassification, they then get like, removed from that chain and put into a more thoughtful process. So I think there are losses there. Um, I think the, um, the barriers to using this, these kinds of data are, are two. One is, um, having the trust uh, to understand and be able to learn kind of what is out there, and then having the legal process to get it out and get it declassified. Um, The second, I'm very happy to say in the U.S. government, works like wonderfully well. And so every time we have identified a resource which should not be classified, um, but is, and have figured out like who's the responsible party and have gone through the legal FOIA process to get it, we have succeeded. Um, The challenge is learning where does it sit, what parts of it can reasonably be declassified, and who is the relevant authority. And that takes just like social ties. And so one of the things that um, uh, the ESOC project, which I co-direct has devoted a ton of energy to, is trying to create opportunities for scholars to build those social ties with people in the security community so that they can learn where do the gems sit and do the kind of thing that we did um, with the Al-Qaeda uh, payroll do- and Iraq payroll documents, which is say, okay, here's here's where the data sits. Here's a property classification process. Let's put the pieces in place to move it from there to here so that the broader community can learn from it.
2: Good. Right here.
4: Hi, how do you do? James Siebens from the Stimson Center. Hi, James. Thanks very much for your talk. Um, so just one... Uh, Point and one question. Okay. Uh, I think I am not embarrassing anybody when I suggest that the cell phone towers set up on special forces bases might have been for signals collection uh, in addition to collecting friendly tips. So um, I wonder to what extent you factored in that mm-hmm. dimension. Um, and secondly, to what extent have you uh, learned anything about the difference between third party counterinsurgency versus counterinsurgency proper. Um, Iraq, Afghanistan, Vietnam are all examples of a third party, an external force conducting counterinsurgency. And it seems there's a qualitative difference there that's important between a local police officer or security forces doing a patrol and a foreign unit doing patrols.
1: For sure. So let me take the second half of that first, which is that um, there, for sure there's got to be a difference. Um, what I can tell you is that we see um, we see patterns in the data which are consistent with the arguments that I've made in both types of places. So some of the best evidence for example on uh, the role of information and how insurgents respond to um, things which change the cost of sharing information comes from studying the Naxalite insurgency in India where there's, there's no third party at all. Um, a lot of the best evidence from the Philippines comes from periods in their history when it was purely uh, a local fight. There was no third party intervention except back at the training and funding stage. Um, And there we see patterns in the data which are like very similar to what we see in Afghanistan and Iraq. So we haven't, there's no like super well designed study which compares exactly the same thing in both. What I can tell you is that we see the same patterns in both which suggests to me that third party or not is not actually critical, right? The father doesn't actually care that much if it is, if he's in like the Southern Mindanao, to him the difference in like the Christian shoulders from Luzon, and the American soldiers from Los Angeles, that's like a really small difference. Um, so that's my intuition. I think on the, the point about the cell phone towers, um, it's absolutely true that there are multiple information channels which come in. In, in that case, um, I'm you know, 99% sure that the motivation for turning that particular tower on was actually coordination with the police. Um, uh, but um, uh, what we, what, what's interesting is if you look at the patterns of violence when cell phone towers come in, Um, The reduction in violence is very local. It is literally like in the area that is covered by that particular tower. And if the way that was working was by creating opportunities for signals intelligence collection on the insurgency, there's no reason it should be like hyper-localized, right? It should only make sense that that it's hyper-localized if what's actually happening is the big gain is in people living in that area being able to use their phone. Um, So that's, you know, I think that's the the best that we know. for sure, there's loads of evidence, signals, intelligence is super important in lots of these conflicts. It's just this other thing seems to be very important, too. Right
2: here? Yeah. Right here. Thank you. Sandy Apgar, I'm a senior advisor here. Um, my daughter, a Princeton ROCC alumna, was stationed in Mosul, Iraq, 2004 to six, as an engineer officer and assigned the mission of rebuilding civilian infrastructure. Tried to use data, uh, accessible data, Mm -hmm. on the demographics and economics of the area to justify getting budgets for doing Mm -hmm. this, and simply ran into every bureaucratic brick wall you could think of. Mm -hmm. So I wrote to General Petraeus, then 101st commander, whose mission this included. And uh, he intervened in the system and wound up Spending a relatively small amount of money mm-hmm. uh, with huge impact. Great. Some measurable, some not. Um, a lot has happened since then. But the question for those who operate both in the field and even elsewhere and can use data and know how to do it, uh-huh. uh, technically, operationally, but continue to run into resistance both to the data itself, sources of nature. And to the use, how do you crack the code, or what what initiatives okay. have you come up with to do that?
1: So thank thank you for the, the question. I think there are there are kind of two that, um, that 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 we've engaged in. Um, so one is um, something we're doing. I do in you know when I when I teach classes, is spend a lot of time with the students who are uh, kind of in operational roles, and we get a lot of them at the Wilson School. Um, get you know we have these spectacular mid-career students coming through is uh, try and make sure they have very clear examples of where this stuff can be useful in, in their lives. Um, but the second is, um, I, I think there's, there's a gap in our education system, which is um, we, don't, we don't really and have not historically trained people who are at the level of managing um, small staffs and above in how to think about uh, quantitative evidence, not how to do it themselves but how to think about given the story that someone's trying to tell me with a piece of data, is that credible or not? And that historically has not been such a big problem. I think it's increasingly gonna be a big problem because more and more of human life gets datafied. And so some of the things that um, I think your daughter was probably dealing with in terms of being able to measure infrastructure and populations, you can now do kind of um, voodoo magic on commercially available high-res satellite imagery to do things like at the level of a building in a city in Syria, figure out how bad is the damage to that building and then scale that up without any human being on the ground and without going to any like, national intelligence asset. You can just like, buy the super high resolution imagery on a regular basis in the commercial market, apply some Google technology available from the web to it and get these really precise measures. So when you're in that world, the opportunity for um, people who don't, to, to try and sell bad ideas with data to senior leaders just like, expands massively. And so uh, my colleagues and I have built out like a little bit of an exec ed program to try and like provide some inoculation against that and give people some basic principles to work on. But I think there's just a gap in how we train people um, at which, you know, there's something in the, which we need to figure out how to get into the pipeline of people as they become, you know, general officers in the military or move into SES, give them some better sense for like what's reliable, what's not, what are the markers of quality, what kinds of stories can and can't you tell with data. Because right now, just the knowledge and the policy community around that is, I think, weak. Right
0: here. And then I think this will be the last question, because we're right up at the end of our uh, time here. I'll do my best to make it a
5: good one. Awesome. Uh, Dennis William, a colonel in the US Army, and currently a fellow over at New America this year. And uh, help me if I'm mischaracterizing what I've heard so far, and what I'm also mm-hmm. hearing is a bit of a throwback to about 15, 20 years ago when network-centric warfare started to become a pretty big discussion. I've attended a few events recently about data and about the use of Mm -hmm. data to make decisions. Uh, I I go back Mm -hmm. to my planner's training that good, solid, well-written objectives and effects have measures of effectiveness and Mm -hmm. measures of performance, and if we get those right and we measure them appropriately, we can make good decisions. Mm -hmm the increase of data and the increase of experts mm-hmm. with the risk of potentially sending graduate level horses down to every battalion, uh, <laughs> are we at a point where we're looking back 20 years at what the vision was, but now have tools and re-looking our wars and going after this vision with the new, the new tools? And then the other piece of this is, Given all that, if, mm-hmm. I'm, if I'm on the right track, what are the insights for future conflict? Uh, rather than refight the old stuff, what is the future conflict? Which kind of goes back to the great power competition discussion.
1: Yeah, so my, my sense on this is I think, there's, um, I think that prior vision was overly naive about the information processing capacity down at low levels. Right? You were never going to be able to like, make sense of the massive amounts of things which people envision getting, which now you're kind of getting to the point where I think you can get. And so my sense is that the, the implication is um, uh, train people at, at somewhat higher echelons to think carefully about what kinds of questions can and can't be answered, and then provide um, at somewhere below the level of like a, um, uh, um, the, the ISAF Joint Command, which was the, the kind of operational command for day-to-day fighting in Afghanistan. Like that was kind of the lowest level that I was aware of in Afghanistan, where you had an ability to turn the data which was being collected into actionable insights. And even there, you didn't quite have the right mix of teams. You had a lot of people who were kind of purely operations research and not at all people who had um, a background in applying data to social systems. Um, And so I think what you want to think about is pushing some capacity to take advantage of this stuff down a little bit further, um, and then training in what kinds of questions can and can't be answered, but not imagine that you can get to the point where you're going to be, a take, be able to take all this stuff and wrap it in to like actionable insights down at the hyper-local level. Um, there are all kinds of problems with that, both in terms of just cognitive capacity, but also epistemologically. There's no reason to expect that when you get at the really local level, the kinds of average patterns you can find reliably in data are going to be that informative. It's like the difference between like choosing public health policy for a country and like what your doctor should prescribe for you. Like data is useful at both levels, but like, it's much more useful at the level of the country than it, for your particular treatment.
0: So the last question, um, and then, then, then we'll end, is what, what, what does this say about the other side of counterinsurgency campaigns? So mm-hmm. insurgents generally are not gonna have, unless they're getting support in some cases, not gonna have access to this type of data, mm-hmm. including data analytics, how much of a disadvantage does this put to the side that is not able to do this, uh, conduct this kind of analysis? In, in other words, how much weight now does the side with more uh, ability to do that give to, uh, give to the side with more information, more processing, uh, as, as opposed to those who don't?
1: I, th- I mean, my, my instinct on this is it, it amplifies the preexisting asymmetry between state and non-state actors. So the more, the way I kind of think about this is there's, there's like um, complementarity between analytics and the application of force.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And the larger the analytical advantage, the larger that difference in capacity. Um, so I suspect that the availability of information as skills increase in processing it, um, the relative advantage of state forces and their allies in controlling individual pieces of territory will go up. Um, uh, that may or may not mean the conflicts are more likely to get resolved.
0: I also ask because there's also this interesting question, if an outside power is providing assistance to an insurgent group or a government, uh, we often think about this in terms of what kind of weapons, Mm -hmm. maybe even intelligence in some cases, but there is a potential here use of analytic capabilities to provide to either side that one may think of on building partner capacity. Yep, yeah, I completely agree. All right, well, if you can uh, join me in in thanking um, uh, Jake Shapiro for for coming. Um, I cannot overstate how useful this book is, how much it really uh, focuses on an important subject, the utility of information and its importance in insurgency, counterinsurgency, civil wars. Um, and I think the broader projects that you've been involved in, and there are a range of articles that have been published that have gotten to questions about the uh importance and effectiveness of development assistance for example are I, I think have really progressed our understanding of various aspects and i think this is what's useful about the book this is not this is not one subject. this is many stories built into a complicated one so strongly encourage people to read through it uh, and not just this but all of the, the issues you've got your hands in because I think they've, they''ve we've we're coming along now from where we were certainly 10 or 15 years ago sure. so thanks for coming and thank you. thank you for participating as well Thank you Thanks very much